Hello, welcome to Bible Marathon and it's dinner time. The word of God we believe is the best sustenance for the spirit, which is why we are taking our time to study and dine on the word of God. So, join us at the table for word dinner. All right, so Hebrews is one of the most amazing books in the Bible when you understand why it is in existence, you know, what was the purpose of the book? And we already said that even though the authorship is debated hugely, we know that there is apostolic backing to the content of the book. Secondly, we, we discussed the fact that the book of Hebrews is written to a specific audience, um, not the audience of the 21st century, not the audience of a Gentile group of people, but the audience of a Jewish nation. So we're talking about Hebrew of Hebrews, people who only, you know, really had a background in Judaism. And so you can imagine that the content will be specific to them, to their background, to their traditions, to their practices. And I also have, have you know, affirmed the idea that the, the, the book is not written to unbelieving Jews, but actually to believe in Jews, to strengthen their faith in what they have believed to be the truth, which is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that he is the Jewish Messiah. So he's the fulfillment of all the things that the law and the prophets said. So you look at chapter one, and what is chapter one all about? It's the glorification of Jesus. That Jesus is not an ordinary man. He's greater than the angels. And so you see from the very beginning, God who spoke in sundry times and in diverse manners has spoken through his son in the New Testament or in the new covenant. He has spoken clearly through his son. Talks about him being greater than the angels, talking about him being the one through whom God does everything that God does. All right. And then we went in chapter two. And, and chapter two starts with a warning. Chapter two starts with now that you know Jesus is the way, now that you know Jesus is greater than the angels, you had a time when the ministry of angels was so severe because the angels brought the law of Moses. You had to keep to every commandment. And if you didn't, you received the recompense of reward for not keeping it. So the writer of Hebrews says, how will you escape if you neglect Jesus, <laughs> right? Because the salvation um, offered in Jesus is greater than anything that the law could have provided. And so if the ministry of angels was glorious, how much more the ministry of the spirit, which is the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so he made that, he started his, his case in chapter two with that saying, if you run away and you neglect the salvation and you drift away from it, you know, you're missing out. And I, I want to, I want to say this faith and listen to me very carefully. Faith is marked by its consistency. All right. It's not this idea of I believe something and that's it. It's a case of I believe something and I still believe that thing. And that belief influences how I live. That's the, the doctrinal teaching of faith. Faith is never just one moment event. It is always thought to be a continuous idea. So it's called believing. All right. So what the writer of Hebrews is warning these people about is, hey, you've believed 
But don't let your belief be in vain because if your belief is in vain, it means you don't even trust what you say you trust to begin with. And so the, the right thing here is to say, don't drift away. You see the words, Hebrews 2.1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So the warning is, you've received something, don't drift away from it. From it. All right. And then he goes on to say, this thing is backed up by ministry of angels, by signs and wonders and by the Holy Spirit. So it's not something that you should doubt. There is evidence to back it up. And then he goes back to the scriptures to back it up even further, saying that, God did not say to any of the angels to sit at his right hand. And not only that, that God has really placed Jesus higher than the angels. Even for a time, he became a human, so he was made little lower than the angels. But now he has been raised up, you know, in power and glory. All right. And then he talks about how it was important for Jesus to taste death for all of us so that he can call us brethren how many of you have ever felt like jesus doesn't understand what you're going through if you've ever felt like jesus doesn't get what you are going through that is a false feeling um your feelings are valid but they are wrong because the fact is that jesus has been through everything you've been through in a sense that he has suffered as a human so the fact that god took on a human form lived amongst you. The Bible says he was tempted at every point, yet without sin. It means that he knows what you feel. It means that he can empathize with you. And that also means that it makes him fitting to be the captain of salvation. The only person who can bring salvation to you and for you to even value it is someone who has been through the struggles you've been through and succeeded, right? Who, who, do you want to, who would you want to teach you mathematics? The person who fails every class, or the person who passed every single exam. Of course, it's the person who passes everything, right? Because, of course, if he passes, he knows what to tell you. Or if she's a stellar student, she knows what to tell you. Well, that's what we have in Jesus. If Jesus went through temptation at every point and says, I offer you salvation, he has to know what he's saying. And so that's like the, the whole point in Hebrews chapter 2, showing that Jesus put to death the power of death. Let me read from there. We're going to start from um, Hebrews chapter 2 from verse 14. And then we'll jump into chapter 3. All right. Stay with me. We're, we're getting somewhere. This is one of the best books to really understand. Oh, the chat is active. One second. Have I missed anything? Uh, okay. Okay. Good, good, good. Good to see everybody. We're following. Awesome. All right. So Hebrews chapter 2. If anyone is able to share their screen... I think that will really help. If not, it's fine. Just pay attention and read your Bibles with me. We're in Hebrews chapter 2 from verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. That's what I just described. We share in flesh and blood. We are humans. So he himself... Uh, Victoria, can you help? Can you let... um? Mo, share her screen if she's still here. All right. So he himself partook of the same things that through death he might destroy. That's one of the mysteries of, of the gospel, that Jesus died to defeat death. It's what First Corinthians calls the foolishness of this world. 
is what God uses to confound the wise. So those people who are wise, the Bible says not many noble, not many of great regard. You know, God has chosen to reveal his mysteries to those who are simple of mind. Why? That's how God wants to get the glory. That in the foolishness, he chooses the foolishness of preaching to save. That the gospel, the power of, the, of God to save is in the gospel. It's in the preaching of the gospel. God chooses the, the most simple ways to bring about the most powerful results. And so God uses the death of his son to end the power of death forever. This is powerful stuff. And then he says in verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is so powerful because a lot of people, you know, have lived their lives subject to bondage. You know, the translation I mean is ESV, if you can find that so that we can follow along together. He says, people all their lives have been slaves to the fear of death. Man, you see, you have to understand that not only did Jesus deal with the power of death, he has dealt with the fear of death. How has he dealt with the fear of death? The fact that you will never die again. That's the gospel. The gospel is, even though you die, you will rise again. And he, even though you haven't died, the Bible says you will never die. That's John chapter 11. That's what he told Mar Martha. And he, he asked that, do you believe this? Because faith is what qualifies you for what he just described. And then this life. And then this life is marked by faith. You, you, or, or it's accessed by faith. You must believe. He says, believe thou this, that, when, that I'm the resurrection and the life. And so if Jesus is the resurrection and the life, it means two things. He's the resurrection. So if you're dead, he brings you back to life. And if he's the life, it means if you are still alive, you will never die. That's the gospel. All right? Um, and then he says, to deliver those who through death were subject to lifelong slavery. So there are a lot of people who are living their lives fearful of death. And the gospel is basically saying, there's no point to be afraid of death. Jesus has dealt with death. In fact, death is swallowed up in victory. That's why Paul makes this declarative poetic statement in 1 Corinthians 15, from verse 56 thereabouts. He says, death where is your sting? He calls death as a person, as a, a personality. He says, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? He's talking about the fact that there is a time that is coming that death will not be the end. That's powerful. First Corinthians 15, look at verse 55. Let's actually look at that because I want to, yeah. It says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting so he's saying what you have no power anymore it's, it's like you know how you can boost who you be you know that's exactly what paul is doing with king james king james english you know where he says oh death where is your sting where is your victory there's no power anymore not only is that not the power of death the fear of death has been dealt with so there's no one listening to me right now that should be afraid of death. If you are, it's something to think about and say, Lord, why am I still afraid of dying? If my fear of death is linked to the fact that I haven't done enough yet, that's, that's understandable. But if you are afraid to die because you're not sure what is next, 
then you need to reaffirm to yourself the gospel. Teach yourself the gospel again, that he that believes on Jesus, even though he dies, will live again. Death is a transition for the believer. That's why Paul, Paul uses the word sleep in 1 Thessalonians 4. Jesus used the word sleep. It's, it's temporary. Hallelujah. All right, so let's go back to Hebrews uh, chapter 2. And you see, he, he, he's still in the same line of thought because you may think he has switched off his line of thought. But verse 16, Hebrews 2, 16, he says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Let me keep reading. You're going to get this. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Oh, this is so powerful. So he wants him to be a merciful and faithful high priest. Two things, two key words you must never skip over. Merciful and faithful. Who are the most merciful people you've ever met? If you check very deeply, it will be people who have gone through the same things you've been through. Right? You know, have you have you met people who don't they cannot they cannot feel your pain? You know, they say, Oh, for example, let's say you've lost a parent. And someone comes and says, ah, I know how you feel, but their parents are still alive. Your response is going to be like, ah, I don't think you can know what I know what I feel. Right? I've had people who have said, I know how you feel to me about some things. I'm like, mm, I don't think you do. I, I appreciate you, but I don't think you feel what I feel. But when someone has experienced a level of pain that I have, and they come and you say, you know, I understand your pain. I know where you are. I've been there before. It, it's a different feeling. Who knows what I'm talking about? It's totally different. It's like, yes, you've been through it. So you can, you're the best person to give me advice here, you know. And so same idea is communicated here. The best people to show mercy are those who have been there. And so because Jesus has experienced what it means to be a human being in every sense of that word, he can be merciful. But then the other part is he's faithful, meaning he kept his end of the bargain till the end. You know, you have to understand that the faithfulness of Jesus is a doctrine on its own. It's the fact that Jesus said he would give his life and he did it. In spite of the temptations, most people don't understand. They're like, oh, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. So Jesus can never sin. Jesus can never do any wrong. Jesus can never do anything. But let don't let your theology be affected by the omnipotence of God that you forget the frailty of humanity as well. Jesus was a man. So if the Bible says he was tempted, if he did not have the ability to fall for a temptation. Is it really temptation? Do you understand? Like you have to you have to have that part of your mind active that it's possible, it, but it didn't happen. Glory to God. But it's possible. It, the fact that he was tempted by the devil means the devil saw the possibility of him letting go of every privilege that he had as a son of God. The devil saw the possibility that if he says, turn stone to bread, Jesus could do it. The very same thing he tried doing in the, in the garden, taking someone's trust in God's word 
and replacing it with his, his own idea of the word. That's what the devil did in the, in the garden. Now he's repeating it in the wilderness, which interestingly, if you look at the Septuagint, the word garden and wilderness, there's not much of a difference. It just shows you that Jesus wanted to experience, you know, at every point what we experienced. You cannot look at the life of Jesus and say he didn't suffer. Ah, no, you can't. So merciful and faithful. But then there is a key word after that. What's that word or what's that phrase? High priest. High priest. So now you're wondering what high priest is because this is 2023, almost 2024. We don't know what high priests are. Like, what, what does that mean? Like I said at the beginning, we're talking about many years ago, not just many years ago, a different context not just a different context, we're talking of Jews who had practices and traditions. So now, as a good Bible student, you want to mark that word high priest, and you want to probably do a deep study in the Old Testament. Who was the high priest? Are, are you still with me? That's how you study the Bible. So you see how even in just verse 17, I just showed you the power of those words, merciful and faithful. They were not just randomly selected. They are communicating a thought. But why is he saying high priest? You should also have a question. Why high priest? Why does he call Jesus a high priest? Not just a high priest, but a merciful one and a faithful one. So your understanding of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, what it took to be a high priest will help you understand this. So that's an assignment I'm going to throw at you while I continue teaching. So on your own personal study, just go back and you can start with the lexicon and do high priest. How many times does it show up? And then you realize that there were a lot of duties for the high priest. So the high priest represented, I'm giving you a clue already, but you'll see more of this because the writer of Hebrews kind of helps to still explain what a high priest does and what they stand for. But just to help you a little bit, a high priest is considered the highest, just as the name implies, the highest um, in the order of the priesthood. And what is a priest's duty? They are mediators. They stand in between. I'm looking at the chat. Let me just check the chat. Okay. The innermost. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah. So the, the innermost part of the tabernacle and the shedding of blood ceremony can be a place to start. Exactly. So if you want to get answers to who is the high priest, go back and you'll see a lot of that there. All right. So, so now let's let's kind of continue. Can you guys still see my video? Yes, you can. And the yes. All right, good, good, good. So a high priest stands between the people and God. That was basically their responsibility. They were supposed to stand between. In what sense are they standing between? In sense of relationship and in sense of sacrifice. So the, the high priest had a duty to bring the people who sin has separated from God to God. And so he has to do certain duties to connect the people of God to God and meet the requirements that these people could not meet. So he's a mediator. All right. And we're going to see how this, you know, how this is important to a Jewish mind who is trying to still grasp the fact that Jesus is the son of God and grasp the fact that Jesus is the only way. No more sacrifices for sin anymore. There are a number of things that 
are conflicting with their religious practices when they hear Jesus. They, they think Jesus, because Jesus has come, he's the Sabbath. Jesus has come, he's our Passover. Jesus has come, he's our life. Because Jesus is here, we will no longer have to sacrifice animals, which we've been doing all our lives. So imagine how difficult it is to stop doing something you've been doing every day. Let's just create a weird scenario. Let's say all your life, you had parents who had been going to church every Sunday. You too followed suit. You started going to church every Sunday. And all of a sudden, someone comes and tells you, there's no need to go anywhere again. Not a very good example, but just for people who have had that experience of always going to church. Now, your parents are at home on a Sunday. Nothing's happening. All of a sudden, like, that's just odd. Like, that's not something I'm used to. How can I be sure it's true? Because I've been doing this worship practice every Sunday. You can't just come and tell me we, we don't need to do it anymore. Of course, please, this is an example. The Bible talks about gathering regularly. So this is just an example to show you what it meant to the Jewish mind that we don't sacrifice anymore. Like literally, it was part of their practice every three years to bring it a, a tenth of their income to the priest. There's the year of Jubilee where they will give, distribute. There was the feasts, many feasts, feast of feasts. There was even something called feast of feasts, you know. So they were party people, you know, and then they had times when they would bring their sacrifices for sin to the temple to be sacrificed. So they had all these practices. And all of a sudden you say, Jesus has fulfilled all of them. Ah, from where to where? So imagine what they are struggling with which is why Hebrews exists. Hebrews as a book exists to help them see how Jesus fulfilled all these things. So he calls Jesus the high priest. So a Jew is hearing high priest and he's saying, I know who a high priest is. He's not high priest Caiaphas. Do you understand? They're thinking about a real person. So they're seeing, oh, Jesus has taken over that position. And you're going to see that as we keep going in the book of Hebrews, the writer has a duty to show you that Jesus is not just any kind of high priest, but the high priest. Praise the name of Jesus. So he says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's the duty of the high priest, to make propitiation. And that's a big word that talks about atonement or atoning sacrifice for the people. For because, verse 28, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You know, this is one scripture that helped me a whole lot growing as a Christian, even till now. You know, moments when it's so difficult and I feel very tempted to go against my convictions. This is a powerful scripture that I think everyone should hold on to. He himself has suffered. Jesus has suffered. When he was tempted, just the same way. You see, there is suffering in temptation. I think that's something that is inferred here, right? Temptation is not just that easy thing that you just say, you can just say no to. You have the ability to, but for anyone who has been tempted and has fallen, you know what I'm talking about. It's not, it's a, there's a suffering aspect to it. It's like, I don't want to lie, but lying will get me free from this situation. Some of you have been in that situation that you know that if you just tell one small white pink lie, you'll be okay. You'll make it through. But 
The Bible tells you not to bear false witness. The Bible teaches that we should not lie one to another. And so all of a sudden, it's like, oh, if I see the truth right now, I'm in trouble. I might lose my scholarship. I might lose this. You know, I'm just giving you scenarios. It's, it's suffering. It's, a, it's an emotional suffering. And the Bible is very clear to say he himself has suffered when he was tempted. And he's able to help those who are being tempted. So the one who has suffered can help the one who is suffering. It's such a, it's such a, it's such a comforting scripture. Praise God. Let me pause for any questions. Uh, you see. Um, you said when you were saying something about the high priest, you said the high priest met the requirements. No, the high priest is supposed to help the people meet the requirements of God. In what so, sense? So, in other words, they are unclean, meaning they cannot necessarily have fellowship with God. Though the, the high priest stands in between and makes an atoning sacrifice for them. So they are meeting the requirements in a sense. It's, a, it's still a type and a shadow like we already know. But that's what the priest was supposed to do. If there was a need in the temple, people brought it and they were the mediator to help people meet the requirements of the, of the temple. So it's in that sense that they are intermediaries. All right, any other question? Okay, so let's go back and continue this beautiful portion. So now we're in chapter three, and chapter three introduces another person who the Jews venerate so deeply, and that is Mr. Moses. How many of us know Moses? <laughs> so they venerate this guy so much. Why wouldn't they venerate him? I mean, Moses is the epitome of God's first prophet, right? After Abraham, the only person that really, really spoke for God to the people was Moses. And so just know that when you are trying to convince the Jews that Christ is the only way to God, that Christ is the one God has chosen to be the Messiah, then you have to prove that he's greater than Moses because Moses said a prophet greater than me is coming. So, so let's see what we can see about Moses uh, as described here. So Hebrews chapter 3 from verse 1. Are you still together? Are we still enjoying this? I want to be sure we're still together. Yes, we are. All right, awesome. So Hebrews chapter 3 from verse 1. It says, therefore, holy brothers, uh, the, the Greek word there is Adelphos, so siblings in God or in Christ. You who share in a heavenly calling. And when he says heavenly calling, what's he talking about? You are now siblings together with Jesus. So you also share in his inheritance. That's the meaning of heavenly calling. You have an inheritance together with Christ because he became human like you. And so you share in his humanity. He shares in your humanity. You share in his glory. Okay. And it says, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. You see, I like the fact that he's called apostle, you know, because a lot of people have this debate. Uh, and I just, who was here? Okay, it wasn't just a few people. Some people stayed back after the, was it Friday last week or Sunday? And they were asking me questions about different things. And I was giving biblical responses. One of the questions that came up was, the question about apostles today, like, should anyone be called an apostle? And I did like a very, very, very long explanation and answer from scripture. 
And I think that was helpful, but I was shorting it. One of my points was, remember that the word apostle just means Greek word apostolos, messenger or sent one. If you are using it in that context, you can use the word anyhow you want. Like this whole idea and this whole debate of ah, apostle is a big word that you cannot use today. If you understand the meaning, you understand that it's what it's trying to connote. A messenger or someone with a message or a sent one. Okay. Now, that does not mean that there is not a special category of people called the 12. The Bible is very clear. There's the people called the 12. And these are the people Jesus gave authority to directly. In fact, when one of them died, which was Judas, in Acts chapter 1, they had to find a replacement for him because it had to be in fulfillment of the, 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 you know, the prophecies. Someone will take his place. And so Matthias becomes an apostle. Guess what was required for him to be an apostle? He had to have seen the Lord Jesus and he had to have walked from the time Jesus was baptized from the very beginning to the end of his ministry. So it had to be someone who was there from the start to the end. And there were only two people that qualified or amongst other people. There were two that were singled out. And one of them was selected by casting lots, which is very interesting. It was a practice of Jews back then. Uh, but they believed God was the one who gave the answer to that randomness, right? They threw dice and, you know, whatever, however they did it. But here's the thing. There were a group of people called the 12, the first apostles. But you see that other people in the Bible were called apostles. For example, Paul was called an apostle. He said, I'm, even though I'm the least of all the apostles, I'm the apostle. Um, then you see people in scriptures that had the same title of apostle. Epaphras is, you know, in the Greek, is called apostolos. Timothy, who was a student of Paul, was also given the term apostolos, right? And now we're seeing Jesus also being called apostolos. So the, the point is, what is the word intending to communicate? Here it's communicating Jesus was the one who is supposed to, who was sent by God. So the writer of Hebrews is trying to say Jesus is the sent one. And so the word is apostolos too, okay? Um, and for those who are still wondering what the answer is, is it okay for someone to have that title? As long as the title is not replacing the authority of the first apostles, the ones who Jesus gave his words to, it's fine. And then there are other people who, whether you give yourself title apostle, in God's eyes, you are not recognized as that. And so it doesn't matter, right? It's just like someone saying, I'm an evangelist. I have a calling to be an evangelist. I am not. It does not invalidate your competency or your ability. It's just, that's just not your gifting or who you are, the office you 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 have, if that makes sense. So there are, so there are people who are called apostle today. They're not really apostles. Mm -hmm. There are people who are called pastors but they have an apostolic ministry. You have to be able to differentiate those things, okay? Anyway, I don't want to confuse you more. Isn't everyone called to be an evangelist? Not everyone has the office of evangelist. You, I, I can say the same for preaching. Is everyone called to preach? Yes. Is everyone called to evangelize? Yes. Is everyone called to be a pastor? No. Do you understand? So pastors preach, but everyone must preach the gospel. 
But a pastor has a responsibility of shepherding people. Not everyone is called to do that. I understand. An evangelist has, an evangelist has a unique ministry to train people in evangelism. That's one of the very powerful things about the, the ministry of the evangelist. And Philip was one of those people who was called the evangelist because every time we see Philip in scripture, it's as if nothing will hold this guy that was on the streets. So that just tells you, that's how you can identify people who have, you know, an evangelical call. Uh, how do you tell an apostolic call? You look at the, the biblical pattern. Paul was everywhere. He was going, an itinerant guy. And not only that, was establishing churches and giving instructions to these churches. So you see a lot of people who have that, like, over serial, um, you know, um, privilege. People who have multiple locations of churches and they're kind of making sure that everyone is growing. And maybe they're even able to uh, plant a church in an unchurched area or um, bring light to an area of the gospel that was hitherto dim. They also have an apostolic call um, or style of ministry. So anyway, the debates will never cease. Just make sure that you are convinced in your own mind and make sure you are following the scriptures. That's all I will say. All right. So let's get into this real quick and just um, see what the word of God has to say. Hebrews 3.1. Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So he's saying... This Jesus guy is the sent one of God based on what we are telling you, the preaching and the message we have, and he's also the high priest. Why is this important? Because he's going to talk about his faithfulness. Verse 2, it says, Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So he's, he's connecting the faithfulness of Moses to the faithfulness of Jesus. Very powerful. So Jesus did everything that the Lord commanded. In fact, we're going to see later on here where it says, Lo, I have come to do thy will, O God. It is written of me in the books. So everything God planned for Jesus to do, Jesus did. Everything God planned for Moses to do, Jesus, Moses did. To a, to, by the way, not perfectly, but that's the focus they uh, the, the focus of the writer of Hebrews here. Everyone in the Jewish tradition knew that Moses fulfilled everything God told him to do faithfully. But we have some hindsight. We can look at scripture and see the fact that he didn't do everything perfectly. Give me an example of something Moses did not do perfectly. He did not. Um, There was a time he struck the rock instead of like hitting mm -hmm. small. Right. So ultimately, he was faithful. So when God considers a person's work, he doesn't look at it. It's not, it's not nitpicky. Um, he sees the faithfulness of the heart of the person. Um, and that's something to learn about God. Um, but yet, Moses was not perfect in everything. Jesus was. Okay. And then verse 3. Um, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. This is so profound. Oh my God, this is so deep. 
He's saying, look, look at, okay, let me read. I think this is best seen in the, uh, N, let me use the NET. Look at Hebrews 3, 3, NET. It says, for he has come to deserve greater glory than Moses, just as the builder of a house deserves greater honor than the house itself. So, quick question. Who is the builder of the house in this context? Who is the house in this context? We. Mm -mm. Moses. Moses. Very good. So, I'm, I'm just trying to show you what he's doing. The writer of Hebrews. He's saying, first of all, he's, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just like Moses was. But hey, don't equate them. He has come to deserve more greater glory than Moses. Why? Hebrews chapter 1 from verse 1. Jesus created all things. He's just going back, you know, building on everything he has said. He's the one who sustains all things. All things exist by him. So if Moses exists, Moses is but just a house. Compared to the builder, so, such a powerful um, imagery here. All right. Daphne, I see your hand up. Do you have a question? Sorry, it was regarding what um, Modupe talked about, mm -hmm. about Moses, how he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. And you yeah. said, and you mentioned that God looks at the heart of the person, not necessarily always the action, but that was the one thing that you guys, you guys are added to what I'm saying. Oh, that's what I heard now. I'm sorry. I'm so I, I said, I said as a whole, God considers the, the, the heart of a person. Uh -huh. So I think the, the, for example, um, even though this is not the exact scripture I would use to back this up, but it's an example. Look at, uh, in choosing the one who would be the King of Israel. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Even though that's not the specific thing, but there's there's something there that is instructive. And that's the fact that God... Can you hear me? Yes, I'm listening. Okay. That's the fact that God sees beyond what people see. So it can go both ways. If you have, just like, you know, that's that I give a test, the Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Some people can say something that they really don't mean, but God sees the heart and knows what is within. It can also go the other way, right? And the other way is sometimes what you may be doing on the outside might seem as an affront to God's plan on the outside, but God sees the heart behind it. Will he punish the action? Yes, he will, but he still sees the heart. Which is why God is still the one that takes Moses away. Like God is still the one that says, you won't see the promised land. You still, you still bear the consequences, right? Or for example, with David, see what he did. God still gave him, you know, forgave him. Um, but he still, his family still bore the consequences of the action. But God still called him a, a man after his heart. So my, my point is, God sees deeper than we see. He sees the motive. He sees the predilections, this is the, you know, all those things that people don't see. So people can see you and you do stuff and they judge you by those things you are doing. But God sees beyond that. That's my point. That right. was a wonderful explanation. Thank you very much. All right. All right. Thank you. So I don't know. They called me and I was kicked out from the Zoom, but I'm 
happy it's just the other device. Okay, let me join back in. Any other question? I wanted to ask a question, but I'll save it to the end. Like, what's the difference between a bishop, pastor? But I'll just save it to the end. I think you will touch let it. Me, let, me, let me answer it real quick. Um, the difference is denomination. <laughs> uh, let me explain what I mean by that. So you've heard things like Archbishop. You've heard things like, you know, like Archbishop Bensin Dahosa. Then you see Bishop David Oedepo. Then in some other places, is Pastor this other place is reverend this so when you look at the history of these things some traditions some christian traditions or some christian denominations have taken some terminologies and kept it that way all right so like today you can have something like general superintendent we trace it back a lot of it goes back to um the the military mili, mili, uh Christ, christo military connections way back very early so you see a lot of terms that are carried on like that you see you know so if you look at the Ang anglican faith compared with the methodist faith you see that they have different titles the whole point is um what they are trying to connote so overseer is what the bible uses it says if anyone seeks to be an overseer meaning you have a church and you are the leader of that church so now you can call it lead pastor bishop you know Archbishop, whatever terminology. Um, but biblical terminology is overseer and pastor. Um, those are the ones we see the most. Or sometimes in place of overseer, you see bishop based on who translated that version. And it has a lot to do with Christian tradition. Does that answer the question? Yes, it does. Thank you, P. All right. You're welcome. So he goes on. And so... Remember, when, when verse 3, the builder of the house deserves greater honor than the house itself. On a grander scale, we are saying God and humanity, okay? Specifically, what he's playing with here is Jesus, creator of all things, Moses, who is also his creation, okay? Verse 5, uh, sorry, verse 4, for every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God. So who built the tabernacle? Go to Exodus, okay. it was Moses. God told him how he must build it, gave him the instructions. So Moses, in a sense, built the house of God. But then he says, hey, Jesus built everything. And so he's just trying to show you that, yeah, Moses is great, but Jesus is greater. So now Moses, verse 5, was faithful in all God's house, as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken. Meaning he did all these things as a symbol to point to something that is coming, which we already understand, right? God who has sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in time past to the fathers through the prophets. Moses is one of those people. He now says, and in these last days has spoken to us through his son, clearly, brilliantly, without a shadow of a doubt, without any veil, clearly seen in, in Christ. So Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And who is God's house? We, right? The church. So keep reading verse six. He says, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. We are of his house. Now you see this very, very interesting statement. If 
In fact, we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope that we take pride in. I want us to switch back to ESV. Sorry, I think I'm still here. That's why it's looking weird. Okay, the ESV says in verse 5, Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things um to testify to the things that were to be spoken later but Christ is faithful over God's house as his son and we are his house if indeed so it, it, now that's what what we call the conditionals of the scriptures when you see an if it's worth looking at because it's not there for for just being there it's back to the point i made at the very beginning that faith is is not just an initial act. It's a continued act. You don't say you believe in something if you stop believing in that thing. I mean, I just, I just, do you get my point? And so there is the assumption that there are people who had put their faith, Jewish people who had left the practices and traditions of the Juda Judaism or Judaical religion, and now they are putting their trust in Christ but there's a tendency for them to fall back and say, nah, just not enough. I still need to do these practices. And so he says, we are part of his house. Who is the we? Still talking about the Jews. The people he's writing to, including himself. And very, you better bet that the writer of this book is also a Jew. And for him to know all these things he knows. So he says, we are his house, if indeed... We hold fast our confidence. Holding fast your confidence is faith. You had a confidence in Jesus to begin with. Hold it fast. And he says, and are boasting in our hope. That means your confidence in what is to come. A few more verses and we'll round up. I just want you to see how the writer of Hebrews is going to appeal to the Old Testament to make a very strong point. So he goes in verse 7. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, he says as the Holy Spirit says, but he's quoting a scripture. What does that tell us? The scriptures were breathed by God, right? All scripture is breathed by God and is useful for teaching, right? A doctrine like we said before. So he says, the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as, is, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. And I said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Who is he talking about? Israelites. The Israelites, good. Now, where do we see this in the Old Testament? We see it in Psalm 95. And literally, he was talking about what happened in Maribah. Maybe, maybe we'll go back to, we'll talk about this in um next time we do by um, you know, word dinner. I'll break this down. We'll go back, we'll look at how it happened. But something happened in Maribah, um, you know, where they basically tempted God. That's the language it uses here. They put God to the test. God was kind to them. You know, some of you already know the story. God showed them wonder after wonder, but they kept rebelling and saying, no, 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 no. And God swore. When God swears, yeah, yeah, you're in trouble. 
He says, and I saw in my wrath, they will not enter into my rest. Why wouldn't they enter into my rest? Because they did not believe in him. So he's pointing to an occurrence in the Old Testament to say, hey, you guys, lack of faith in my son and my plan is tantamount to cutting yourself off from my rest. That's why there are a lot of warnings here. The warnings are to Jewish believers who are stumbling. They are, they are shaky. And he wants to remind them, Jesus is, the, is enough. See, the Gentiles are believing on him. They don't have any of these hindrances. You know, that's one of the benefits. And I'll round off here today. This is, this is one of the benefits we have being Gentiles. You know, if you read the book of Romans, chapter 11, you understand that we are just privileged. How we're just grafted in. We're on our own, though. But God, who is rich in mercy, saw that we're going to destruction. He made a way that was not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. He broke down the middle wall of partition. So the Jews and the Gentiles cannot be one in Christ. That's big. That's powerful. But you need to understand, it's a big stumbling block to the Jew. Which is what Paul preached, right? To the Jew, a stumbling block. To the Greek, what is what did he call it for for the Greek? Uh, you know, too much wisdom. So we we are blessed. You have to understand that the Jew is struggling with Christ being a stumbling block. It's like I cannot. There's all these traditions, these Judeis Judaical practices that I'm used to. And now I say I should let all of that go and just follow Jesus that I cannot see. But for the Gentile, we don't even have that baggage of the law. We just were dead in sin and trespasses. Do you understand? Like, all we have to do is hear the gospel. Someone died our death, paid our fine. We can walk scot-free because someone has done it for us. The Jew, they have to let go of all their traditions of the Messiah. They have to, first of all, believe that the Messiah is not going to come from a royal um, throne or something like that. He's going to come, yes, from the lineage of David, but he's going to come as a manger, um, as a as a as a serving servant. It it just doesn't make sense to the Jew who has for many years been expecting the coming of this grand Messiah that will overthrow the Roman government. Now, who comes? Can anything good come from Nazareth? He was born in Beth. Do you understand? So it's a lot of faith. For the Jew to believe in Jesus. That's why if you go to Israel today, there are still people who are like, nope, we're still waiting for the Messiah. You understand? So let's be thankful that God made a way for us. Because the, the, the parable of, you know, the bridegroom in Matthew 25 depicts how he, the, the, the man invited people to the wedding feast who were part of the family, a.k.a. the Jews. But they rejected it. all the servants that were sent to them. They killed them. And then he says, okay, let's spread the announcements to all those on the streets, a.k.a. the Gentiles. Guess what? They came in droves. And that's what happened to us. We heard the gospel. We believed it. And you see, God is still planning for the Jews. It's not over for them. But this is one text of scripture that shows us how much it takes to convince a Jew that Jesus is truly the Messiah. And um, we're going to learn more about this as we continue. So to wrap this up, Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. And those are the two things that have been emphasized so far. Praise the name of Jesus.
All right. So I'll take a question. Um, literally, could I finish Hebrews 3? The rest of it is just the same warnings, but let's take our time. All right. Any questions? Do you see your hand up? I just wanted to ask my question when you're talking about Moses. Moses was, um, what you right? Moses was like a tool used by God. I'm asking, that's not what you said. I'm asking, like, is that it? Hmm. Let me understand your question. Moses oh, what is like a tool. Okay. Said that, okay, Moses was the house and Jesus is the builder, is the builder of all things. Yeah. He has more glory than Moses. So mm -hmm. I'm saying that was he just like a so in a sense that since he made him and he made him, that did you just use Moses, not like to do his will. At the end of the day, it was from him. Yeah. The way God uses like everybody, like use Mary and everything. Okay. Yeah. So but but so there are two, there are always two sides to this story. There is the the divine will of God and the individual will of men. So may, God can divinely choose Mary or Moses to serve a divine purpose. But these people are not making their individual actions based on divine control. I don't know if this is around your question. Is the fact that... God forced them. Is that what you're getting at? Come again. I think I I don't mean that God forced them. Mm -hmm. I just mean that I just mean that like God, because whatever God wants to do, He use human beings. Yeah. So as much as like they're looking at Moses, it was God that initiated it and still made him and not made him do it, but just used him to achieve his goal. I don't. That's yeah. I mean. Yeah. So when you think about God, think about a sovereign being that also gave us freedom of choice and agency. And sometimes that freedom, not sometimes, all the time, our freedom is within the confines of his sovereignty. So you will still do things by your own choice, by your own will, but nobody really does anything without influence. Do you, do you agree with that statement? Yes. Like everything we do. Yeah, so we are the ones making the agents, like the, the choice, you know. For example, you might think, the reason you want to eat ice cream so bad today is because you just like ice cream. But when you do a deep search, you find out uh, you have been exposed to something that's connected to something else that has triggered a memory in your past that has made you feel certain, a certain way that now you want ice cream. So it's not just cravings. It is exposure to environmental influences. You probably wouldn't have wanted ice cream if you never knew what ice cream is. So my point is, God is so sovereign that he can align the things in life to cause you of your own free will to take certain actions. That's just, that's just the reality. So, and the, that's the only thing that makes sense with the gospel because Jesus had to fulfill a lot of things in scripture, but those things that were in scripture had to be prophesied. So who inspired them to prophesy? God. Do you understand? So there are some things that people still did by the inspiration and the influence of God, but they did it of their own will. In fact, many times they did it, they didn't understand what they did. But they were the ones with the agency. It's one of the mysteries of scripture and mysteries of life generally. How, when, and that's one of the things I want you to learn, so it's a secret. When you pray, 
you have to realize that what you are doing is you are letting down your agency slightly to allow for God's coincidences. And this is a whole teaching entirely. Sometimes when you pray, it is you suppressing your own will. Not my will, but yours be done. And so at that point, your prayer suppresses your, your choice of sabotaging your life. And so God can now, by his supernatural, you're basically allowing him, for lack of a better term, God is all powerful, but you are basically saying, see, by my prayer, I'm giving you free reign over every aspect of my life. And guess what that also includes? The supernatural coincidences that cause you to do certain things. So all of a sudden, for example, my ex experience with getting a job, I told the Lord, I said, I don't want to struggle. My first job in this country must be easy. I don't want to have any stress because of the things you want to do in my life. I want to do ministry. I want to help people. So I must not be the one struggling to get a job. That was my own personal prayer. And I said, Lord, I trust you with it. And I just kept in prayer, consistently letting him rule in that area. All of a sudden, I was doing telecoms engineering, minding my business. But he was exposing me. And now I'm looking back, like, oh, that's God. He was exposing me to weird situations that made me like cloud computing out of the blues. Something that I didn't even know. I started doing courses. I started studying it. You know, all of a sudden, I would meet someone who would say I'm a cloud compute, uh, com, com, um, cloud engineer. I'm like, that's cool. What do you people do? You say it. How all of a sudden, from my heart, I'm happy about it. Do you get? And sometimes God can use those little things to to prime you to what He wants to do for you. And so all of a sudden, that priming, you know, here and there, exposure. One day I was going past one room I normally won't go through in the library. And I saw something on the board that said um, AWS event, so, 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 so. And I just got my car at that point. And I, I saw the location. I saw it was a road that I could actually ply. I was like, okay, let's do this. So I went for it, going there to learn, not knowing that they had structured that program as a process to bypass the um preliminary stages of getting a job straight to interviews so i get i got there was taking notes preparing everything enjoying myself i was actually the only one enjoying asking questions <laughs> you know only to find out at the end of the day that oh the three days program was to see who performed the best so they can call you for an interview so i never even had a res i didn't have a resume presented to them before i got my job it was the day of the interview i said let me even be let me have sense self and I went and I put my resume together because they could ask for it. But till that time of interviewing with my current company, never, I didn't have a, a put together resume. So you can see how sometimes God can influence things. If you leave, you have to trust him. And that's the hardest part. You always, maybe you came to God with your plan. And so when he wants to take away your plan, you're like, ah, no. So he can't lead you. He can't really do much. But once you lay aside your plans, you say, you know what, God, I, I, you, you know me, you made me, you know what is best for me. Let me stop planning my life. But what I'd rather do is trust you. And, if, and what you now realize is you are the one making those decisions. But because you are trusting God in prayer, those decisions now start to align you in the right direction. So that's my experience. That's what I've learned from scripture is not my will, but yours be done. Uh, I don't know how we got into prayer, but I hope that helped someone.
um you know yeah so how did i get here moses right agency i was talking about the will of god how like how do men still do their will <laughs> within god's will yeah and i hope that also beautiful that pastor Ernest. Thank, thank you thank you very much explains my life that's awesome and i know and i can resonate with what you said now because i understand a little better you know your situation at the moment so you can see how god really is orchestrating things even though it's not looking like what you wanted so don't worry i i, I think many of you are going to see how many of these things play a part in our lives um you were there praying crying lord i want this and then God in his mercy, the Bible talks about you don't know what to pray as you ought, but the spirit prays. Sometimes I, I believe the spirit intercepts. Just make sure you create the opportunity to pray. That's what many Christians lack. They don't have a prayer time. If you create a prayer time, what will happen many times? God will take over your prayer. The spirit will pray. This is Romans 8, 26. The spirit, when you don't know what to pray as you ought because of your infirmity in the flesh, the spirit will intercede for you. And the Bible puts it this way. It says, he that knows the thing that is in the heart of God knows what to pray. So God sees God. <laughs> the spirit of God sees God's heart. So when you are there, just make sure you are creating the opportunity for that. As you talk to the Lord, as you pray, as you groan, as you desire, God just takes over and starts to change your prayer points if you allow. you know. But he just starts to realign you put desires in your heart but you see a lot of people don't pray and that's why they don't experience that and if you understand that that's what prayer is fundamentally ah it will change your life i'm serious it will change it will change your life i'm not even joking I've, i know you may have heard that it will change your life a lot if you go to my church you know but literally it, it will it will just make sure you are submitted to god's will and Last thing, the best thing you can ever do with your life is serve God. No matter how unpopular it gets, the best see is the best thing you can do with your life. Find what God is doing, find how you can be a blessing to someone and just serve at any stage of your life. So in the hardest times you are serving, in the easiest times you are serving. In my life right now, 2023 was not my best year if i was to look at all my goals if i look at all my goals list and i say uh this one i was supposed to do this do this do this sometimes when i'm in the flesh i'm like i've 2023 was failure but in the spirit i'm like oh my god see how much growth see how much experiences see how much people have had to be have become blessed because of my obedience see how god has ordered my steps see how i'm in a new place you know, see, like, I'm just like, wow, I think it's just at every moment I have just decided God first. That's it. That's consecration. You know, it's, it's not, I'm not even at the best of it, of what consecration looks like yet, but that's the ideal situation you want, right? And God can, God can count on you and do stuff with your life, you know, so... That was an awesome meal. Thank you for joining us as we studied the Word of God. If you would like to join the actual Word Dinner sessions live on Fridays, you can visit the link bmg.disha.page. It's always on Fridays, 9 p.m. West African time. 
Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at bmg.global and see you when next it's dinner time.